This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm flying solo. On today's show, author Diane Ackerman discusses her powerful new book, The Human Age. Then PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers highlights some under-the-radar kids' books for fall. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And speaking of fall, wow, all the big fall books are hitting hard. Uh, We have an amazing number of new books on the list. I'm going to do my best to cover them all in the time I have. Uh, First of all, on the fiction list, this is incredible. The top seven books on the list, numbers one through seven, are all new to the list. They're all out uh, this week, and uh, that's that's really pretty remarkable. Uh, At number one, is Personal by Lee Child. This sold a whopping 70,000 copies. Uh, it was very impressive. Uh, it is the, the latest Jack Reacher novel, the 19th in the thriller series. Um, Lee Child is very well known in the thriller world. He's a thriller award finalist. Obviously, the series has been going on for a long time. In this one, a sniper threatens the forthcoming G8 conference at a stately manor outside London. There are assassination attempts all throughout Europe and the forensics determines that one of only four people in the world could have fired the 50 caliber bullet with such accuracy from a distance of 1400 yards and one of those people is a former special forces soldier who was recently released from prison and this ties into previous jack reacher adventures reacher helped put him away 15 years ago for killing an army sergeant in a fight so uh, obviously everybody thinks that cot has done it the question is whether that's correct uh And Reacher's keen analytic mind in action will entertain readers as much as the assorted physical means he uses to take down the bad guys. Down at number two on the list is Somewhere Safe with Somebody Good. Uh, This sold about half as many copies, 37,000, which gives you an idea of just how astronomical those Lee Child numbers are. Usually it does not take 70,000 copies to get at the top of our fiction list. And 37,000 is still a, a very solid showing. This is Jan Karen's book, uh, and it's uh, connected with the Mitford novels. Father Tim Kavanaugh is back in town after sojourns to the Mississippi and Ireland with his wife, Cynthia. And uh, we say that the, the ending, which takes place at Christmas, and this is, of course, a very big time for Christmas books, is too emotionally prepackaged and drags out a long book. And fans should debate whether Father Tim has to cry as much as he does, but like him, they will welcome the return to Mitford with its quirky citizens. So uh, we definitely pegged this as one that was likely to get some attention, and there it is indeed on our hardcover fiction list at number two. Number three, we're back to Thrillerland. It's The Eye of Heaven by Clive Kostler and Russell Blake. Uh, and uh, our review of this one is also kind of middling. We say that Kessler recycles plots and villains from earlier books in the sixth Fargo novel, uh, which is his first one co-authored by Blake. 
Uh, there are treasure hunters in Spain who run afoul of an old adversary while exploring the wreckage of a 17th century ship, and then they manage to jet set all over the place, uh, an Island, where they discover a Viking longship. But uh, to everyone's surprise, the ship is carrying perfectly preserved pre-Columbian artifacts, which in turn lead them to Mexico. Uh, readers can expect the usual Fargo fun, though they should be prepared for more cliched prose than usual. Down to number four. This one received a starred review. It's The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell. And uh, we we uh, actually gave this uh, quite extensive review asking, is this the most ambitious novel ever written or just the most Mitchell-esque? And with its wayward thoughts, chance meetings, and attention to detail, Mitchell's novel is a thing of beauty. I know some people have been uh, expecting to see this on the Booker shortlist and were surprised that it wasn't there. On the other hand, uh, I've heard even from some Mitchell fans that it's maybe not his best work. And it is his first book to be published since the Cloud Atlas movie, so it could be interesting to see how this showing compares with earlier releases. A little further down the list, at number five, is Dark Blood by Christine Fan. This is a, another long-running series. It's the 26th book in the Dark Carpathian series. Uh, it's very impressive, a very long and interesting run for Fian's paranormal series. Uh, this one goes over the top with magic, battles, passion, and a multitude of characters. Uh, our review says that series followers will be pleased with the appearance of previous characters, as well as with the adventures of the new starring couple, which is a Dark Blood war a man who hunts rogue lichens, uh, and a dragon seeker mage who is also a warrior, uh, but can help him heal as he recovers from some injuries. And uh, our review says their complex bond becomes unshakable as they face implacable enemies, impossible demands, and an uncertain future. All of that sounds very exciting, but uh, it's probably best for new readers to start with earlier titles so that they get a firm grounding in Fian's world and mythology before uh, moving on to the complexities of the later books. And at number six, another starred review, The Secret Place by Tana French. Uh, in French's mesmerizing Fifth Dublin Murder Squad mystery, Detective Stephen Moran, who works in the cold case unit, is biding his time until he can make the murder squad. And when a 16-year-old girl shows up with a clue to an old crime, he sees his chance. So he uh, joins forces with the murder squad's feisty detective Antoinette Conway, and the pair set off a chain of events that ensnare the girl and her three best friends. French stealthily spins a web of teenage secrets with a very adult crime at the center. So uh, this one's been getting a lot of traction. Uh, I have had more than one person ask me if I could get them a copy. And uh, I also heard from one fan that she was actually going to buy two copies, one for herself and one for her gentleman friend, so that they didn't have to share or argue over who would get to read it first. So no surprise that that hit our bestseller list. It's there at number six with uh, 11,000 copies sold. So very strong. Moving on to the fiction list, after I take a breath here, because uh, that, that's, uh, that's quite a list there in fiction. And there's, there's plenty more on the long list, which you'll be able to see in the magazine on Monday. So on the nonfiction list, uh, at number one, again, and another number one with a bullet here, it's What If by Randall Monroe. Monroe is best known as the creator of the XKCD comics, and uh, many people go to his website not only to read the comic, but to read his What If columns in which he answers 
answers questions from readers. And since most of his comics are about science, technology, mathematics, language, uh, and various types of geekery, people ask him some really geeky questions like, what if you tried to hit a baseball pitched at 90% of the speed of light? Or if there was a robot apocalypse, how long would humanity last? So he takes all these questions really seriously. He runs computer simulations. Uh, he solves equations. He, he has done some great interviews talking about the background knowledge that goes into these things. And uh, What If is all the way at the top of the, the bestseller list and then some. It sold 35,000 copies. Um, the pre-orders apparently were off the charts. And uh, it's really impressive that it's done so well for uh, a book by a webcomics guy. But... Uh, you know, his webcomic is very, very popular, and I have no doubt that the book will stay on our list for quite some time. And down at number two, we have an entirely different sort of nonfiction. This is Unfiltered by Phil Robertson, the head of the Duck Dynasty Empire. Uh, and the the press touts it as uh, the ultimate guide to everything Phil Robertson believes in. So if that is a thing that interests you, then this is a book you will want. And if it's not, then it's not. But uh, it sold 18,000 copies, which is a very respectable showing, a very strong showing. Uh, any other week without Randall Monroe there, it would have been enough to put him up at the top of the list. So clearly there are plenty of people interested in Robertson's particular brand of philosophy and interested as well in his uh, reminiscing about how he created the, the Duck Commander Empire. Down at number three is Oprah Winfrey. That's not a phrase you hear very often. Usually Oprah Winfrey is going to be uh, at number one, but this is a collection of her columns for O Magazine, and uh, it's possible that people who have read all of those columns already are maybe less interested in getting them in book format, but it's still sold a very respectable uh, 9,400 copies in its first week out. Uh, the book is called What I Know For Sure, and the message behind it is, you lead life, it doesn't lead you. This is a very inspirational book, and uh, our review says it's divided into topics, including resilience, clarity, gratitude, and awe, and each essay provides a brief, encouraging, and thought-provoking reading moment. Uh, ask yourself what you know for sure, Winfrey says, and what you'll find along the way will be fantastic, because what you'll find will be yourself. So these are very gentle and supportive, uh, very concise, sincere moments of contemplation. And uh, that sounds like a, a lovely thing to get someone who's uh, maybe frantically running around the beginning of the school year or dealing with some struggles or stress. It's just a thing that you can sit with for a moment. Take a breather and have a moment to, to just calm yourself and, and uh, get a little bit of a handle on what's going on. So that's at number three, uh, what I know for sure. And at number four, uh, we have Chasers of the Light by Tyler Knott Gregson. It's very rare to see a poetry book this high on the nonfiction list, but this one has sold a very respectable 7,900 copies in its first week out. Uh, like What If, it is also tied to a website, which might help to explain its popularity. And the story behind it is that Tyler Knott Gregson, uh, who's a photographer, found a Remington typewriter in an antique store, and uh, he was buying a broken book for $2, so he pulled a page out of it, typed a poem, and uh, as the, the jacket copy says, he typed the poem without thinking, without planning, and without the ability to revise anything. And apparently this was the magical combination for him. Three years later, he's written almost a thousand poems uh, and you know, posted a great many of them. He's also incredibly 
good looking. <laughs> uh, it's uh, one of, one of his selling points. When we announced the deal, we we titled it "Perigee Scores Poetry Hunk" and referred to him as the Ryan Gosling of poetry. So it's possible that that uh, author photo on the back of the book is also maybe selling a few copies. But uh, these are you know tiny little poems typed onto scraps of paper, um, and uh, the idea is that they're illuminating little bits of life at a time, which is a, a lovely concept. And that's what we have uh, on the nonfiction list for debuts. I just wanted to go down a little bit further and uh, note one book that came out in July, but this is its first time on the list. It's Diary of a Mad Diva, and that is Joan Rivers' memoir. Uh, so obviously the death of the comedian has led to uh, a lot of people picking up her memoir to learn about her life, which is a lovely little gesture. Uh, so that's uh, sitting comfortably on the list at number eight uh, with about 5,000 copies sold. And uh, I, I, I suspect that Joan Rivers would actually be quite entertained by the thought of people rushing out to buy her memoir now and would probably say something like, why couldn't they have done that sooner when I was around to enjoy the royalties? So that's what's on our uh, very lengthy and impressively changed up bestseller list. Uh, really a lot of movement after last week. So you can see the entire list in the magazine this week. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Diane Ackerman tells us how humans can save the planet from ourselves. We'll be right back. Hello, my name's Gabriel Weston, author of Dirty Work, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Diane Ackerman on the line. Her new book is The Human Age. Diane, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Rose. So tell us a little bit about this book and what makes it different from the previous books. Well, it explores how in just the past 200 years, human beings have become the most powerful force of change on the whole planet. And this has created a a very exciting and at times bewildering new reality. Many scientists are even talking about changing the name of the epoch in which we live from the old geological designation Holocene to Anthropocene, which translates as the human age because we have so completely reshaped the world to suit our desires and our needs. So how does the Anthropocene differ from other eras in history? I mean, as you say, the previous designation was more geological. What what makes this era, this age, so different? When we think of other eras, let's say the age of the dinosaurs, we associate it with finding fossils. But what people in the future are going to find from our age won't really be very many bones. Bones are pretty fragile. They're going to find our techno fossils. They're going to find our residue. Lots and lots of plastic seams, uh, tiny plastic tears, which is as far as plastic degrades to, and aluminum from all of the cans that we're throwing away, and uh, atomic isotopes, and new kinds of metals that we've created. They're going to find our technology. They're also going to discover that we quite suddenly leveled uh, many of the forests on Earth and instead planted factory farms full of crops. And all of a sudden, there's the DNA of just a couple of animal species where there used to be great biodiversity. Uh, 
it will appear to be quite a different uh, ribbon in the fossil record. So one of the things you talk about in your book is the concept of natural or unnatural. Can you get a little bit into that? And and is there such a thing as unnatural? We used to think that that nature was pristine and perfect and separate from us. And now we know that just isn't true. Nature includes us, it flows through us, and there's absolutely no separation between us and nature. We are nature. So termites build mounds and we build cities. Other animals have courtship feeding and we have the dinner date. But it's really all nature. And of late, and I mean just in the last 10 and 20 years, we've been really learning about the microbiome, all the little bacteria and protozoas and so on that make us up. And we've been discovering that we have 10 times as much DNA from bacteria than we have human DNA. We are actually protoplasmic flowing organisms. We look whole, but we're much more involved with the atmosphere and the rest of the world and one another than we ever thought we were. So all of it is nature, but our idea of nature has really expanded and we're changing it. We're changing our idea of what human nature is, and we're changing our idea of what nature all around us is like. I often hear the word natural or unnatural used to refer to behavior. Uh, do you get into that as well as the um, the sort of physicality of what's natural and what's not? Yes, but it's very confusing because we we know now that some of our behaviors and the behaviors of other animals are are perfectly natural, but they're brought about by other creatures like um, parasites that can jump into you and take over um, your system and make you more reckless than you would otherwise be. I'm thinking of toxoplasma. Mm-hmm. Women who are pregnant are told not to be emptying, emptying cat litter, and that's why because this tiny organism gets in there and uh, all of a sudden it gets into rats or mice and it totally changes them. It makes them fall in love with cats, which is pretty stupid. Then the cat eats them and then the organism can continue its life cycle inside of the cat. But humans can get this too. And we're now finding that it's possible that whole cultures um, are influenced in in their behavior by how much of this toxoplasma that they actually get in undercooked meat and and like that. So when you say things are nature and natural behavior, yeah, it's all natural, but sometimes we're influencing parts of it more than other times. So it sounds like a lot of this is really about the relationship that we have to our surroundings, to our environment, whether that's trying to shape it or trying to come to terms with it or being shaped by it, such as when big destructive storms literally reshape the landscape. And also a lot of it is accidental. Most of it is accidental. We're uh, changing the shape of birds in our cities. The ones that are surviving are the ones with shorter wings because they can dart around the traffic and not get hit. Uh, 
And they pass on those genes, and all of a sudden we have cliff swallows that should really be out nesting at Big Sur, but instead they're uh, nesting on skyscraper cliffs, and they have gotten much shorter wings. So we're changing them. Spiders are growing much bigger in the city than they're uh, the same spiders that live in the country because we have artificial light here. So, you know, it's like take out food for them. <laughs> it, just, it just shows up immediately. They don't have to work so hard. Mm-hmm. Rats are getting smarter. That's certainly what we want, smarter rats. We're changing the behavior of all kinds of animals. This this all sounds a little bit unnerving. I'm sure people really want to be thinking about giant spiders and smart rats. <laughs> are, are, are you intending this book to be a, a kind of a warning? No, it really is not a crusade of that sort at all. Quite the opposite. Um, I, I've been um, upset by all of the gloom and doom in the news these days. Uh, and it's so important that we don't lose hope. There's no reason for us to feel powerless. Climate change is absolutely real. Our control of the planet is absolutely real. And we need to make corrections in in what we're doing nationally, internationally, and as individuals to uh, stop climate change as much as we can. We won't be able to stop all of it, but we should be able to significantly slow it down to ensure that we have a healthy future of the kind that we want and need. We can do that, but that's not the message that we most often get. The message that we tend to get makes you just feel paralyzed, like there's nothing you can do. But actually, there's so much that people can do, and it's really important now that we all speak up and get out there and do what we can. There are climate marches taking place. Um, You can email to the EPA and encourage them to continue with their idea of carbon taxing and putting um, controls on emissions and things like that. And then there are lots of little things, or they seem little. Recycling, bicycling, or walking instead of driving to work. Choosing your car wisely. Uh, Paying attention to where your food comes from. And buying locally whenever you can. A lot, most of us live in cities, but a lot of our food, most of it, comes from a great distance. That makes no sense. It uses a lot of fossil fuels up. We could have urban farms, and we do in many places around the world, and there will be many more of them. Um, We can influence the landscapes around us and volunteer to help build wildlife corridors and all kinds of things. One of the things that you do is a a case study of sorts for the Maldives. I was wondering uh, if you can talk a little bit about what larger nations could learn from what's going on there right now. The Maldives has a a very important stake in climate change because they're almost at sea level. So they are one of the many island nations that will be hit hardest. And so they are going completely green. They are doing everything imaginable and very successfully and intend to switch totally to renewables almost instantly. But they're not the only ones doing that. The Prime Minister of India... Uh, recently announced that he was going to transition 400 million, the population, to solar energy. 
and he started planting two billion trees along the highway. That's a lot of trees. But trees absorb carbon dioxide from the air, and they hide it in the ground, which is what we want. And also they provide a wildlife corridor. And since, as I say, we're becoming an urban species, people who are commuting then, and instead of just seeing housing tracks and other cars, are surrounded by trees and wildlife and so on. So it's helpful in many different ways. The larger nations, the bigger polluters, really we're going to have to do the lion's share of the heavy lifting when it comes to switching to renewables. Um, But we also need to think in terms of providing support for the poorer nations because we're going to need to do that too. So technology can really be helpful or harmful on a small scale or a large scale. What do you think the role of technology should be in the near future for human developments and uh, as we continue to shape the world? We've accomplished so many great things, Um, despite all of the challenges. uh, I think there's room for great optimism when it comes to the way we use technology. Um, It's an exhilarating era of invention for us, and we are going to increasingly have the knowledge and the technology and the foresight to make even larger changes. We have already proven that we could use our technology to change the world, and we didn't do such a great job. Now we can put our minds to it and work collectively, and this time just keep in mind what we are doing and change the world again for the better. Um, I think we really are at the beginning of a brave new era, the Anthropocene, uh, in which we are becoming aware of our imprint on the planet and how we use technology and how we do our farming practices. And we realize that we were acting not out of mischief in the past, but largely accidentally. The greatest uh, discovery, the greatest achievement we have isn't really scientific or technological. It's self-awareness. This is the first time in the history of the human race that we are at the point where we realize our power on the planet and that we have the capacity for changing it. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Diane Ackerman, author of The Human Age, who's saying some fascinating things about human relationships with technology and with what we like to call progress, I suppose, as we continue to shape the planet. So what are some of the most exciting and uh, maybe even some of the most alarming technological developments that you've encountered as you've studied this? Here's a low-tech one, and it's not alarming. It's wonderful. It's really wonderful. There's an architect uh, in Bangladesh who was getting pretty depressed 
when he was watching his country being flooded all the time. Bangladesh has the largest floodplain in the world, and it is fed by the, snow, the melting snows from the Himalayas, except that global warming has been causing more and more of the snows to melt, and the floods have been getting worse and worse. And his buildings have been washed away, and his neighbors, and so on. And he had a great idea. That was to launch a fleet of a hundred ships with a very shallow draft so that they could skim across the floodplain. These uh, boats are all powered by solar power, and they are floating schoolrooms, hospital clinics, agricultural extension, um, areas where they're teaching a new kind of water farming to people. And he allows people to come and have all of their devices recharged, provided they agree to keep their kids in school, which is a very nice proviso. Um, and that is a way of using technology in, it's really complicated technology, but it's also simple technology. It's the sun in a very life-saving way. He's managed to provide uh, a future for 90,000 people this way. And um, as I understand it, they're going to launch a, a hundred more of these boats, and they hope to reach another 80,000 people. This is just one man's clever idea and action, which is really great. Some of the maybe more alarming ones for some people are the um, intelligent robots mm-hmm. who are evolving consciousness the ones that are being designed to evolve by themselves and recreate themselves. But that isn't something that's going to happen for quite a long time. We're really in the early stages of that. I I don't really find any of the technology alarming. It's entirely how you choose to use it. For instance, uh, genetic engineering. I think we all agree it would be really good to be able to use genetic engineering to help people with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or make sure that kids don't grow up with terrible illnesses. On the other hand, do we want to really uh, mix up the genes of completely different species and have them out there in nature? Do we want tomatoes that have the genes of salmon in them, which we have right now? not to make the tomatoes redder, as you might think, but to help the tomatoes survive in colder temperatures? Or do we really need to have pets that fluoresce green? And yet those are available because they've been able to mix the genes from fluorescent squid with goldfish and um, other kinds of pets. So it's going to be how we choose to use it. We can right now coat things in nanoparticles of silver, uh, very minute particles, invisible to the human eye, but the the silver is uh, antibiotic, and so you could conceivably coat everything in a hospital, and that would really help protect against MRSA and sepsis and all kinds of stuff. On the other hand, there are a lot of bacteria that are good and that you need Um, not just in the body, but in the air that we need to help fix oxygen. So we're at a stage where we're better able to change the world 
than we are to understand it. And that's something that concerns me. We're going to need to have a lot of oversight in some of these areas. The word that keeps coming to mind for me is ethics, that this is this is really um, not so much a practical conundrum anymore. We're pretty confident that we can do whatever we decide is worth doing. But the question is how we decide what is worth doing. Ethics is a, is a large part of it, and there's no, no question. Um, there are going to be a lot of departments on college campuses of biomedical ethics and, all, and environmental ethics, and, and like that, uh, there will be lots of think tanks around because we're going to need that. The environmental movement right now, the climate change movement, and there is a real groundswell of concern and activity, especially among younger people, um, urging governments to get on, get on board and get moving and get things in check. All of that is a very ethical thing, too. This is one of the great uh, ethical um, times uh, of our era, one of the great ethical concerns. I've lived through many others, like uh, the women's movement and integration and apartheid and the Vietnam War and gay rights. Uh, all of those things, essentially, at heart, were ethical. Mm. Um, and they were the sorts of things that, as Al Gore says, are very good at changing laws. And if enough people speak up, that's what happens. Let's get a little bit more into uh, kind of how the book came about. A lot of popular science books have a, a, a sort of textbook-like format where you just read them from start to finish and one idea flows into the next. Yours is more like a series of essays. Why did you choose to go that route? I wanted to write about how our relationship with nature has been changing very swiftly um, and at really mind-boggling pace in the last few years. I don't think it's just that I'm getting older. When I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, that's when plastic came in. That's when frozen foods came in. All of these things are very, very recent. And uh, so I thought how interesting it would be to focus on as many of these separate facets of how our relationship with nature is changing as possible. Um, I do have some through lines. I have the orangutan uh, Booty, who is the master of ceremonies, and he appears quite often in the book. And he is real. He's an eight-year-old orangutan at the Toronto Zoo, who is part of the Apps for Apes program. Mm -hmm. He has a, an iPad. He can Skype and he can play with various games and so on. And he has it because we understand so much more now about the minds of animals than we ever did before. And we know that um, he and his kind have really very intelligent minds. And we want to make sure that they're not suffering any more than they need to be um, when they're living among us. How has your work as a poet influenced your nonfiction writing and your approach to this? And poets have been interested in nature and in human relationships with nature pretty much forever. Yes, that's true. And I essentially think of myself as a nature poet, whatever I happen to be writing. Uh, there's science in my poetry. There's poetry in my science. It's all nature, though, to me. 
And I don't always know if the prose that I'm writing is really a prose poem or what it is exactly. It's a certain way of looking at the world. And poets tend to be obsessed with certain questions. And I've always been frantically trying to understand what the human condition is like, what it was like to have once been alive on this planet, what it felt like and tasted like and hurt like and thrilled like, um, what the whole experience of being alive on this particular planet is, is all about. I assume other planets will be different. Other planetarians will be different. But we have a very rare privilege to be alive on this startling planet with so much life at every level going on and such interwoven life. And so I've always been fascinated by nature and human nature where the two meet. And this book really combines that. It's right at that intersection of nature and human nature. So right now you're on tour promoting the book. What's uh, what's up on your plate after that? I think I'm going to be working on a children's book about the senses of various life forms. Um, I'm going to be an owl and be slime mold and be all kinds of things. Oh, it sounds like a trip. <laughs> I think it'll be fun. It sounds like a great time. Well, maybe next time we have you on the show, uh, you can bring Booty the orangutan on uh, since we're connecting by Skype. Skype. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? I've been talking with Diane Ackerman, and you can find her book, The Human Age, in stores right now. Diane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Rose. It's been a pleasure. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, John Sellers tells us which kids' books for fall are worth another look. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Rudy Rasmus, the author of Love, Period, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, John Sellers is here to tell us about some noteworthy children's books for fall. Hi, John. Hi, how's it going? It's going very well. It's very nice to have you here. It's good to have some company while Mark's away. Absolutely. So, um, you had some some famous books and some less famous books. So, where do you want to start? Well, let's start with, I guess, the the famous ones. I mean, you know, like any other area of publishing, you know, we definitely see a lot of uh, celebrity books published for children and teens. Um, I think it's part of publishing, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, they're not, they're not so great. (laughs) Uh, You you, kind of get the sense that this is uh, just a a quick money grab and, you know, publisher or whoever is trying to capitalize on a fan base or, you know, a celebrity from whatever area thinks, oh, you know, writing a children's book is easy. I'm just going to write a picture book. And this is like a totally an easy ticket onto the Today Show or something. Right. So a lot of them, not so great. And there's a lot of, you know, non-celebrity books that are not so great either. Nothing different there. But to to find, you know, a really good book from a celebrity sometimes feels a little, a little rare. But um, literally just this month we've got, and really this week, we've got uh, three uh, that are just out. Um, and all of which are are quite good. Um, we've, in fact, the first one that I talk about is one that we just uh, ran a, an online review of this week and gave a star to. Um, and that is a picture book called Gus and Me 
by Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. Now, that is not someone I would have expected to write an outstanding children's book. Which, you know, maybe that's my prejudice is showing. No, I mean, I, I think that that's true. I and mean, we think of him, you know, obviously Rolling Stones, rock and roll, this, you know, larger than life figure. And instead, he's giving us this really tender, intimate uh, tribute uh, to his grandfather and basically talk, going back to his own boyhood and how he sort of uh, fell in love with music and the role that his grandfather uh, played with that um, and making it even more of a family affair. Uh, the book is illustrated by his daughter, uh, Theodora, uh, Keith Richards' daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, it's just a really intimate, he, all these stories that he kind of weaves in about sort of, you know, learning to play the guitar and like taking long walks with his grandfather and being so long that they had to spend a night, you know, in a distant town under a tree or something because they couldn't make it back home in time and that sort of thing. So it just, when compared to these, you know, again, it, it's just an intimate uh, portrait of, of this young artist, I guess, uh, that it's a nice contrast to the sort of larger than life persona that, you know, you get with the celebrity or a lot of celebrities. You get a real window into his, who he is, I guess, and where he came from. That's really cool. So what age is that for? Um, this is pretty young. I, I want to say probably in the four to eight uh, age range. And the other nice thing about it I should mention is that, uh, you know, you know, first of all, his daughter's artwork is very nice. I don't think she's someone who's done picture books in the past, but very loose and, you know, friendly, lovely art. Um, and Richards himself has a really nice storytelling voice. And there's actually a CD included with the book. So, uh, you know, people who who buy it can actually listen to him tell the story literally in his own words. So it's kind of a nice uh, little touch there too. That's neat. So is this something that you would maybe get for a kid who's interested in music, um, or is it more of a, a broader audience? I, I mean, I think you know, parents who or grandparents at this point who uh, grew up with and or loved uh, the Rolling Stones as a natural pick for them. I think you know, this is very cannily being published just in time for holidays and that sort of, of thing. Of course. Um, but I think absolutely for kids who, you know, who certainly whose parents have a love of music or who maybe who are exhibiting their own love of music or starting to, it, it would be a, a natural thing. And to see the trajectory from just a boy with a guitar in his room practicing Malaguena to, you know, what he became mm-hmm. uh, has, or rather has become is, is a cool thing for a lot of kids. No, that's neat. So what else is on your list? Okay, uh, the next one up is another picture book. Uh, It's called Firebird, and it's by Misty Copeland, who is a soloist, uh, dancer, ballerina with the American Ballet Theater. Uh, She's currently, I believe, the only uh, black soloist with the company. Um, and this is, you know, again, also a picture book, and it's her first book for children. Um, she did have an adult a, a memoir earlier this year called uh, Life in Motion that I think you know adult readers might be familiar with. Um, but this book is sort of designed as an encouragement to young readers and to, or young dancers, really, and especially African American dancers like Copeland, uh, who may you know dream of following in her footsteps and mm-hmm. you know playing uh, performing on stage one day. Um, so it's a very inspiring and encouraging book, and uh, the collaged artwork. Uh, uh, it comes from an artist, uh, Christopher Myers, who is a recipient of a Caldecott honor. Um, and it really brings a sort of sense of vitality uh, to the book. Um, so a neat project there and a neat pairing of, of talents from people in very different fields. Is, is it more of a, is it a storybook or is it more of a description of the ballet life? Yeah, it, 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 it's not kind of neither, I would say. It really is sort of meant, it's almost like a, like a poem to readers. It's almost like she's speaking to readers directly and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, saying, I, I really was just like you at one point. Like, you should, you know, reach for those things and, and follow. The, so it's a more, it takes more of an inspirational tone, I'd say. There's not a, necessarily a, a concrete storyline and it's not necessarily even about her specifically, but it's more kind of poetic in tone and sort of, you know, just meant to serve as a sort of encouragement and, if, and you know, sort of, I could do this, so can you, even if it seems like uh, maybe you're the only uh, person of color out there on the dance floor, or maybe you don't, your, your family doesn't have the, the means to, uh, 
to get you to where you think you want to go, that it is possible. That's really great. It, it's interesting. Celebrities as role models, that, that idea has kind of gone out of vogue. You know, it just seems it's all tabloid scandals these days. And it's really lovely to see people who are famous in the arts giving back in this way to, to reach out to young kids who are having that kind of dream or ambition and say, you, know, you can be where I am because I start out where you are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and the third one I have for you is um, a middle grade novel, so for a slightly uh, older audience, and it's called Nightmares, and it's by uh, actor Jason Siegel, mm-hmm. and he co-wrote it with uh, an established author from the children's world, uh, Kirsten, Kirsten Miller. Um, so people, I think, know Siegel from movies like Forgetting Sarah Marshall and the Muppets movie, um, but this is his first uh, book for children, and uh, like I said, it's a middle grade novel. Uh, it's about a boy named Charlie who uh, discovers a portal between our world and the world of nightmares, and it basically ends up being up to him to sort of prevent our world from becoming a realm of constant nightmares and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit scary, a little bit funny and uh, entertaining, and, and also sort of inspirational, sort of conquering one's fears and that sort of thing. Um, but you know, that sort of you know the sort of personality that comes from the book, I think is what people would expect from an actor like Siegel, who is one of those celebrities who I think, you know, just comes, comes across as very personable and people sort of gravitate toward him in a certain way. Um, back at a uh, book expo America, back in the spring, um, he hosted the, the children's authors breakfast. And I think he pretty much charmed all of the booksellers in the audience that morning. And, I'm sure. And I think that sort of thing bodes well for when, when one is launching a book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he also uh, did well with his choice of a uh, co-author, um, Kristen Miller has written uh, the Kiki Strike series, which is also for that sort of same age range, as well as some uh, some YA books that PW has you know, starred and been fans of. So, kind of a, again, and, you know, not necessarily. I want to say unexpected. You know, people like Siegel. People, I think, recognize like with with his work in the, the Muppet movie, for instance, that he's someone who finds these passions and gets behind them. But um, still, a pleasant surprise. And that. the Muppet movie means that he's very prepared for kids as an audience, too. Absolutely. Because I think he did writing in that. It wasn't just him acting. I think he was mm-hmm. involved behind the scenes with that, too. Um, and I do actually, now that I think about it, I have one fourth little celebrity book that maybe I'll Go sneak in it. there. It, unlike the rest of these, which are all out, um, this one doesn't come out until a couple weeks from now, later, end of September. But um, it's by another picture book, and it's by B.J. Novak, uh, another actor. Um, people know him, I think, best for his work on The Office. Mm-hmm. Um, but his picture book is called The Book with No Pictures. So <laughs> nice little oxymoronic uh, title there. And true to the title, there are no pictures. It is just text. Um, but, the, but it's a picture book. But it's a picture book. I know. You know it was funny. When, when we, <laughs> I don't know if this is too off topic, but when we ran the review of the book, um, our copy editor in our house actually came over and queried me. He's like, can we call this a picture book if there are no pictures? And it's like, oh, it's more of a format thing. It doesn't actually matter that there are no pictures in this book. <laughs> so it's a it's a big square book. It's a big square book. I think 32 two pages, like, you know, most picture books. Mm-hmm. And uh, just text on each page. And basically it's, um, you know, it's it's all about the narration and the the joke the the fun of the narration is that basically as the book unfolds you know this this is a book that's made to be read aloud you know by an adult to a child and the joke is that the narration suddenly reveals like it's gonna it, it, it whole purpose is to basically make a laughing stock of whoever's doing the reading and <laughs> basically books force you to read whatever they say and uh-huh. so I can make you say this and I can make you say that and that's the power of a book and it, it's 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 you know it, there's one joke to the book but it's done very well and it's very funny and I think it will have a lot of kids laughing when they hear it read to them that's delightful um Randall Monroe who's on our bestseller list this week uh just did something very similar actually with his Hugo 
award acceptance speech, he couldn't be there to accept the Hugo. So he sent Cory Doctorow, and uh, there's Cory posted a lovely picture of the slip of paper he had with reading the acceptance speech, which said, "And now I can make Cory say any words I want him to." Which mm-hmm. followed just a list of random pretty words that Randall felt like hearing Cory read out on stage, and it was delightful the audience just loved it so that that feels like doing that on a small scale for an audience of one would work just as well absolutely or even you know a larger audience at the library or in the classroom that sort of thing so Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of fun and uh really yeah so that's coming out a little bit later this month but yeah and all in all not a not a bad fall for celebrity books that's great yeah it's it's really actually quite difficult to write a book I believe it or not. Yes, whether or not you have uh, you know a million followers on Twitter or not. Right. <laughs> so it's uh, it's great that these people are able to make such shifts from careers on stage, on screen, uh, in in music to this very intimate form of art. I mean, really, picture books in particular. It, it is a moment between an adult and a child, and and you're kind of facilitating that moment with the book. So it's uh, it's a big shift from playing to audiences of thousands or millions. Absolutely. And and also to sort of treat the treat it with as much attention and as they would to any sort of other performance they might be giving and to mm-hmm. sort of, you know, put put that much effort into it where it's clear this isn't just sort of a, a sort of a, a lark or something but something they really believe in and are investing their time and talent in. That's very neat. So obviously those books are going to get some attention because they're famous names on the covers. You mentioned that you also had some books you wanted to talk about that might have flown under people's radars. It's busy. We're all getting ready for the start of school and things like that. Um, What should uh, parents and kids be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, well, you know, like like you said, I felt like you know these are books where these books are going to get attention, and there's always so many more books out there that we could ever talk about or, or you know give time to. So I tried to think of a few, maybe sticking with a loose back to school theme, that I thought were worth um, you know taking a look at that are also either right out, out right now or going to be out imminently, um, and you know some maybe some slightly outside the norm things too. I don't think a single one of these is what I would call traditional fiction, uh, for whatever that's worth. Um, the first one is a book of poems. It's uh, YA poetry, which is not something I see a ton of crossing my desk. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the book is called Poisoned Apples uh, by an author named Christine Hepperman. Um, this small, slim book of poems, it's her first book for teens, not her first book, uh, period. But um, what she's doing with these poems is mashing together basically fairy tale themes and characters with issues that modern teenage girls are up against on a daily basis. So she's taking things like eating disorders, um, misogynistic boyfriends, and the way that women are portrayed in media and culture, and combining them with these sort of very familiar fairy tale stories, characters, and elements. And uh, I don't know, it really effective. Yeah, that <laughs> uh, sounds it, like a brilliant idea. Uh, it's kind of book that, you know, has reviewer people like me searching for adjectives like scorching and searing and that and that sort of thing. But they're also, uh, you know, bitingly funny at times. And uh, if you want, I actually, you know, they're, they're quite short. So I thought maybe I could give a little taste. I, sure, just an excerpt. Uh, this one is called uh, The Wicked Queen's Legacy. It used to be just the one, but now all mirrors chatter. In fact, every reflective surface has opinions on the shape of my nose, the size of my chest, the hair I wash and brush, until it's so shiny I can see myself, scribbling notes as each strand recommends improvements. Wow. So that's just a little taste. That's not even the entire poem. Yeah, but, but that, that's, just, that's very goosebump-inducing. Yeah, and then the, the whole collection is really like that, and there's also a lot of really sort of unnerving uh, photography of uh, 
empty dresses and all sorts of odd, you know, equally creepy fairy tale imagery that's, you know, a visual component there too. But a really cool collection. And I almost, I don't think it's something that's new per se, but I definitely am getting the feeling that a lot of feminist themes are sort of showing up in, in YA books this fall. And I don't think that's something new. You can find books that date back years and decades that have that too. But sure. I do feel like there's a certain moment maybe happening starting this fall. And I'd be curious to see where it goes in future seasons where I'm seeing more of it than I had uh, all at once. So. Hmm. And, you know, you really hear about teenage girls writing poems, but I don't think I've heard before of someone writing poems for teenage girls. That's a really cool idea. Yeah. It's, it, like I said, um, poetry aimed at teens is not something that really crosses my desk uh, all that frequently. The poetry that I see are often these big, you know, doorstopper collections of, you sure. know, the same the classics uh, things that we've seen mm-hmm. a million times. But um, this is, so this was a really neat collection and um, really a, a sort of thing that I think would get passed around and really get... Um, people talking so cool book very excited about that one for fall um the next one is for a younger crowd it's a middle grade graphic novel uh, it's called el defo by cc bell mm-hmm. um it's actually a memoir it's a, a graphic novel style memoir of her school age years after uh learning that she was deaf and uh she was given this device called uh, the phonic ear to which she had to then strap to her chest and wear under her clothing to school which you know, I don't know exactly when she grew up. That I mean, sounds I, awful. I think I think we're I think this is basically the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it's, it's sort of that level of technology. So she had this massive thing that she was hyper aware of that she was of trying to mask it. But it's this monstrous box that's sort of strapped to her chest, and her teachers had to actually use these remote microphones that they would speak into so that she could hear this thing that's connected to her ears and like strapped to her chest. And wow. It, anyway, it's a really. But anyway, uh, the neat thing about it is is that. It, this device actually ends up sort of giving her what she comes to think of as superpowers because these teachers forget that they're, uh, you know, carrying these remote mics around. So they're bringing them back to, you know, the teacher's lounge and the uh-huh. restroom. And suddenly she's overhearing all these things. So, uh, the, the character in the book, um, sort of develops this alter ego superhero persona of El Defo and sort of imagines this sort of these powers that, you know, she has because of, uh, you know, this device and just, you know, the situations that it puts her in. So there's, there's a lot of humor there. Um, I should also mention that the, um, uh, the author has drawn all these characters as rabbits, and so <laughs> and so their ears. Are, oh, that wasn't what I was picturing yeah. at all. So, but you know, because of the prominence of ears, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's a really sense. smart little decision, and, and, and very funny, very sweet, um, very poignant book. Um, and it's a graphic novel. I, you know, this one, I don't, I don't want to say it's getting no attention. I feel like uh, it does get a, a fair amount of uh, love in my Twitter feed. So I, I will be curious uh, when you know, sort of award season comes around. It, I don't know. This seems like something that maybe could uh, get some traction. Mm-hmm. But very cool book there. Yeah, it sounds like it could get traction in the graphic novel world as well as in the kids and young adult world. Mm-hmm. And she's someone who, I mean, she's. This is not her first book. She's done several for for uh, for children, including some with her um, her husband uh, Tom Engelberger, who has a a popular series called uh, the, uh, this Origami Yoda series that sort of combines origami and Star Wars for middle graders. That that series just wrapped up this fall as well. But um, so they're kind of a a fun, a really neat, and very talented couple in the uh, in the children's book world. Huh, that's very cool. And uh, let's see, I had one more for you. Uh, this one, I, I should admit, does not come out for a couple weeks yet. It's more of an end of September book, but it, it seemed to fit the, the back to school theme, um, perhaps the best of all of these. Um, and it's by Paul Fleischman, and it's called Eyes Wide Open. And it's a, a nonfiction title, um, basically aimed at teens. And it, it, it's basically aiming to encourage uh, critical thinking skills among teens, uh, especially with regard to environment, environmental issues. Um, he's sort of breaking down different critical tools uh, that teens, but really anyone, can use to see through things like 
the you know the vested interest of a corporation who wants to frame an issue in a certain way, um, media biases that might be present, um, the importance of actually verifying claims as opposed to just you know taking what is said as fact um, and things like that. And you know the things that he talks about in terms of corporate misdirection and PR campaigns and sort of being able to see through and, and recognize things for what they are um, really are much more broadly applicable than just to environmental issues. But that was the, sort of the genesis of the book. Um, anyway, it's a book that I would actually throw in the hands of many adults as, as much as kids because it's really about critical thinking and, right. and not just accepting what you are told and understanding that the people who tell you things have a lot of um, motivations that you, you know it's worth being aware of. So this is basically wag the dog for kids. I think maybe you could think about that way. <laughs> that, that does sound very useful and definitely something that a lot of adults could use a, a grounding or a refresher in as yep. well. It never hurts to be reminded to pay attention. Absolutely. And, and to perhaps suspect motives yes <laughs> at least pay attention <laughs> at, at the very least yes well thank you so much for that roundup and it's always great to have you on the show absolutely thanks for having me and now a final word from our sponsors hi i'm patrick swenson author of the ultra thin man and you're listening to publishers weekly radio and that's it for today's show i'm rose fox and you've been listening to publishers weekly radio Join us next week for an interview with Justin Martin, author of Rebel Souls, Walt Whitman, and America's First Bohemians. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show, 